Hello, friends. I want to tell you about Diaspora Co., the company that is building a better spice trade. If you don't know Diaspora Co., let me tell you all about it. You want to know how are they building a better spice trade? Well, first and foremost, they're paying farmers four times the commodity price and three times the fair trade price. And these are not just transactional relationships. These are long-term relationships that they've been building year after year after year that touches over 200 regenerative farms and most importantly, 1,500 farm workers. These are actually some of the very best spices that you can buy on the market. The freshness and potency are unmatched. So if you're thinking right now about how you've had the same dusty spices in your cabinet for two years, head to diasporaco.com and bring home a world of flavor. Free shipping on orders of $70 or more. Welcome to the Stephen Satterfield Show, part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm chatting with my friend Alicia Kennedy. Alicia is an award-winning writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. She is the author of the forthcoming book, No Meat Required, The Cultural and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating, available on August 15th. On her newsletter from the desk of Alicia Kennedy, which has over 25,000 subscribers, she writes about food culture, politics, and media. She can also now add teacher to her resume as she's been teaching the culinary tourism course at Boston University's gastronomy program. Alicia and I discuss her feelings about food writing, the difficulties of writing a book, especially one about veganism. We get into quite a lot, but one of the parts that stuck with me, among other things, is how to deal with disappointment with grace. And for a long time, I felt disappointment was a huge part of my entrepreneurial story. So before High on the Hog came into my life, I was living in pretty relative obscurity, hustling an esoteric food magazine, selling that magazine, Whetstone, literally out of a satchel, door to door at different retailers. But a platform is really another way to say power. And that was not something that I'd ever experienced really beyond the relative privilege in my gender and nationality, but power and privilege are not the same thing. So for me, there was really a chasm between all of the good things that were happening to me and the reality that my life changing was a really difficult thing for me to adjust to emotionally and creatively. I had to reimagine my relationship to being successful because my community saw less of me and more of a story that formed in their mind about all of the wins that were happening to me because those wins were very visible. And what happens when a person becomes reduced to their wins is empathy becomes harder to come by because if it seems like things are going well, then that is a perception. And so failure for people who are successful becomes an especially isolating event. So what I would offer, especially for creative people, is if you feel the isolation of people in your community reducing you to your wins, please don't let that be a hindrance to your creativity. And for 
those who are in the process of making or having taken a big leap or risk, you should know that there are no losses in failure. There are only lessons. And if you move with courage, you will always be rewarded with a revelation. Alicia Kennedy, thank you for joining me on the Stephen Satterfield Show. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. So let's start first with, before we talk about your book, your career leading up to the book. I think we first met around, oh gosh, I don't know, 2015, 16. You really made a name for yourself as someone who was sharp and insightful with both the things that you critiqued and celebrated. So can you talk about just how you came to develop your own perspective as a writer, as a critical voice, and how you have seen the industry change over the course of, I don't know, call it the last decade or so? Well, I don't think I would be a food writer if I hadn't come to food through actually making it. I had wanted to be a literary critic. I'd wanted to write about books. And I did some of that when I was younger. I worked at New York Magazine as a copy editor starting in 2009. So I thought I'd kind of just be a copy editor at the magazine forever and maybe write some weird books that would get published, maybe write some literary criticism, and that would be my life. Unfortunately, I did burn out completely on copy editing. Um, that wasn't my fault. That was structural at the magazine. And I just started to bake a lot. I started to develop vegan baking recipes. I ended up sort of, I always say, accidentally starting a bakery on Long Island in 2012. I only did that from 2012 to 2013 because I burned myself out again by working full time and being a baker. And so I was like, okay, how can I sort of figure out a way, a sustainable way to move forward with all these things I've learned from being a vegan baker, from trying to run a small artisanal food business, understanding the cost problems when you want to do everything the proper way other than pay yourself? Mm -hmm. And like, what can I do that would bring a different vibe to food media. Because obviously, since I was working at New York Magazine, I was reading Grub Street every single day very closely. I was reading other food magazines. I was reading other media. And I felt that there was so much not being talked about, especially around vegan food. And I thought there is, you know, an opening for me here. I have this experience running a small food business. I have this knowledge of ingredient chains and what it costs. And I have all this knowledge of other small food businesses doing this and we're like really working hard at trying to marry flavor and sustainability and workers' rights. And then I pitched a piece to Grub that they like sort of took, but then I got ghosted by my own coworkers. I think this is probably why I quit that job eventually. And so in January 2015, I officially published my first piece of food writing, which was a profile of Lagusta Yearwood, who owns Lagusta's Luscious in New Paltz, New York. And, you know, I really just learned as I went how to do it. I realized that the stories I wanted to tell weren't being told for kind of a reason, I guess, in food media, is that people do not take vegan or vegetarian food, quote, very seriously. 
I left New York Magazine. I went to Food and Wine. At the beginning of 2016, I was able to write a piece for them. I think it was called like Why 2016 is Going to Be the Year of Vegan Cheese. And it took off like crazy, but nothing really came of it for me career-wise. I built up a lot of resentment and anger over the years in terms of my relationship to media, just because I felt like I could just never get through. And I was constantly wondering whether there was something wrong with me. I was just trying to do cool work and like tell cool stories that other people weren't telling. But I kept working and I kept doing it. And I don't really understand why. (laughs) I think I like in hindsight, I have no idea why I kept doing what I was doing. I'd been working on a book proposal that ended up being the book that's coming out this year. I worked on that book proposal for like two or three years. It had to pivot to sell. And then I ended up writing the book I wanted to write anyway. And honestly, when I started my newsletter three years ago, I was really at the end of my rope with food media and thought that it was over for me. I was like, we're going into this pandemic and... I will figure out what I'm going to do on the other side of it, but it's probably not going to be food writing. Like, that's really what I thought. And so when I started my newsletter, I really was burning bridges (laughs) and like throwing bombs and like destroying any possibility that food writing would be a career for me. And what turned out that people liked that. You are an absolute legend. You said so much there that for me is so resonant that I almost felt I could have been talking in particular around the parts of making it work for reasons that are unbeknownst to us. Like, why did we persist and endure, you know, when it just wasn't happening? And I think to some degree, even though we weren't thinking about it and talking about it that explicitly in those terms, you know, around the time we met, I think we were united in this mutual exasperation for reasons that we don't know or like continue to dwell away on our own (laughs) things. And when I think back to 2020 and, you know, the start of your newsletter, I feel it really captured such a moment of collective exasperation and of just a general sense among many different factions of people of just like, you know, there was just so much uncertainty and it did seem that our industry among others was imminently going to collapse. And so to have been at that place, especially hearing you subtly mention that the book proposal that for reasons unbeknownst to us, didn't cut it four years ago or five years ago, all of a sudden became the thing that you wanted to write about. I can infer from that, that you garnered that latitude from growing your audience, growing your own opportunities and having conviction in your own voice and ideas. How do you kind of square where you started versus getting to write a book about what you wanted to? Well, I think that the reason I sold the book at the time that I did, and I sold it for a very small advance. And I think when I say that, people think, oh, $50,000, like no, $10,000. And it, it found a home at Beacon Press, which is a historically social justice oriented nonfiction press. I think that I wouldn't have felt at home and the book wouldn't have felt at home anywhere else than this publisher. 
Is that to say that the process of writing a book was fun? No, it was horrifying torture, um, <laughs> which I think a lot of writers can relate to. But, you know, I think that they probably would have bought this book no matter what. You know, a lot of bigger publishers didn't really see the potential of a book on the history of vegan or vegetarian food because it's just not a significant market. It just isn't. You know, it's like how many people in the world don't eat meat? It's, it's a very small percentage. But Beacon did see the potential in that, especially because the way I write about vegan and vegetarian food is it's always very tied to cultural factions or subcultures or movements of whether it's the civil rights movement or ecofeminists or the punk movement, not just like we ate this and then we ate this. I think people think that because my newsletter kind of took off sort of around that time that the book and the newsletter were kind of tied together, but it actually wasn't that. And it's interesting because, you know, people perceive the success of the newsletter as something that has kind of granted me, I don't know, like a blank check in terms of what I would want to do next, but it certainly has not. And I like to say these things because I think that people need to hear them who are like struggling in terms of their own careers or what they're doing. You know, I had a cookbook proposal out at the end of last year that was rejected because I don't have a big enough Instagram following. I applied for a fellowship that I didn't get. There's so much that still doesn't happen for folks, even when you think that they're writers who are doing really well and at their peak or something like that. Wow. Okay. That's very interesting. I know that for me, even as someone who has had, I mean, tremendous success in our field that I did not anticipate, I still get rejected regularly, you know? And I think it's good to have a way of being graceful in absorbing that rejection, because the implication of rejection is that you are still striving, right? Yep. And now if you are striving and you are not able to make peace with the outcome, that's a tricky space to be in. Yeah. And I hear you in saying that not only are you sharing for the benefit of other people who are on their grind, but just as a way of affirming, like, it's okay. You know, it will be okay. Yeah. And in fact, definitely is not a final destination. It is just a thing that happens along the way and, and along the path, you know, like, there's a lot of soft power and influence in every industry that goes unrecognized, which is frustrating, mm -hmm. but something that we all deal with. But as someone who is annoyed hearing that you're not getting a book deal because of Instagram followers, <laughs> I'm like, come on, y'all. We, we have to do better. I'm subject to the same things, you know, and for my career as well. So I'm not naive about it. And when people ask me about it, I'm not in a position to say, ah, it doesn't really matter because yeah. these publishers and television producers have grown more brazen. At first it used to be the quiet part, but they <laughs> have grown more brazen and saying, no, it really just comes down to this specific thing that we used to call superficial, which has now become like yeah. the most consequential thing. So I hear you on that. I have learned to take rejection in stride, particularly because I never really thought that I was going to win. You know, a lot of what you were saying was so resonant. 
So, you know, I have developed ways of, I guess, receiving rejection gracefully, but it isn't a thing that I talk about a lot. Well, I think that people don't talk about it because it's embarrassing, of course. And like the way that a lot of other people will interpret this wouldn't be as, oh, you know, they're being graceful about rejection. They would interpret it as, oh, they have sour grapes about it, or they're actually not as good at what they do as they think they are, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's just a matter of being a creative person in public. It's like, you will experience rejection. And that's that. But like, I think that people do need to hear that it's a normal part of being a writer. I think that we have to remind people of this who are earlier in their careers. Definitely, especially if things are going to be so depressing, like your work being built <laughs> into a follower metric. But let's talk about opportunities that are happening and present. You are now part of the academy as a teacher. Yeah, I've taught this semester at Boston University in their Masters of Gastronomy program. Yes. I have to say, you know, when we first came out, there was a handful of them. And I've been very heartened to see kind of the rise of food gastronomy classes and universities all over the place. It probably would have kept me in college if it was a thing when I was coming up. But like, I'm very curious what it's been like for you as a writer to come, you know, back into the academy with what I think is kind of like avant-garde content. So what are the students like and what's that been like for you? It's been so amazing. I had no idea what to expect in terms of teaching. I've really loved writing lectures. I've loved lecturing. I've loved having discussions. I've loved reading everybody's writing. I never thought that I would like to be a teacher. I didn't know if I'd be good at it. And then this opportunity came up and it was, you know, the subject of culinary tourism is one that I've never, I had never thought about so literally or in such a focused manner, but it is something that has been bubbling up throughout my work. And, you know, this ability that teaching the class gave me to focus and really drill into the subject matter was such an amazing opportunity for me intellectually, talking about tourism as colonialism, having folks read Jamaica Kincaid and Derek Walcott and like really centering the Caribbean as a place that has been so taken and kind of wrung out for its resources and, you know, talk about going from plantation to paradise and the ways in which that affects our understandings of the Caribbean. And so like, that's been so great for me because I do obviously center Puerto Rico in my work, but I have not had that opportunity to talk about the Caribbean as the region that it is and the significance of that and and to really think through these connections. And so that it's been such a great opportunity for me. I would love to keep teaching in in food studies or gastronomy. It's the best. I'm actually I'm presenting in April at a conference called Recipe Theft at Indiana University. So I'm getting to kind of get more into that space, which is really cool. So recipe theft. Yes. I'm reading that as like cultural appropriation. Is it, is it, or what does that actually mean? Well, we're having a meeting about it next week. <laughs> no, but um, recipe theft, I believe what I've interpreted it as is having conversations about how we can write recipes in a time when recipes are so profuse. We don't know where ideas have come from anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, what does it really mean to write a recipe, to own a recipe? Is mm -hmm. it even possible? And so for me, I'm coming to it from like, there's so much we cannot claim in food because 
all of these ingredients, all of these cuisines that have been developed, whether from organically or whether as a way of forming a national identity, these things have come before us to such an extent and defined us and the way we see food to such an extent. How do we even know when we're writing a recipe, who to cite, what to cite, whether you're stealing or not? Like a lot of the times, do we know whether we're being original or not when we're developing recipes? And so given that context, how do we move forward and bring a unique narrative and perspective to recipes? And where can we do that? And for me, it's definitely in the writing of it. It's time for everyone Mm -hmm. to kind of like (laughs) talk, talk through recipes in the way they really are embodied in the kitchen and that sort of thing. Totally. And love that we're here for that moment. (laughs) About the culinary tourism as colonialism, super profound stuff. I'm going to ask you the simple answers, which are both the smartest and the dumbest. How does one move about the world without committing sins of, I guess, colonialism as a traveler? Or is it not possible? Is it inherent in your view, you know, moving through the world with a lens of exploration or recreation? Are we inherently kind of performing or reenacting colonialism? I don't think so always. I don't think it is always in and of itself a colonial act to travel or to be a tourist, you know, because I did, we did talk a lot about that false distinction in our class of like, oh, a tourist is a bad person and a traveler mm-hmm. is a good person. And it's like, how are, like, these are classes mm-hmm. distinctions. These are racialized distinctions. Like, what are we really talking about when mm-hmm. we're talking about these things? So I definitely think, and I think I've tried to talk about it in my class a lot, because a lot of the times when people do these readings about colonialism and tourism, they feel like, oh, so there is no good way for me to go anywhere. I'm stuck where I am and I should never leave. And that's certainly not the point. I think the way in which you can travel and not reenact the bad power structures of our global pasts is to recognize your position and also just educate yourself, have a sense of history in your brain and how these foodways developed, have a sense of the economics, the demographics, the language, build some knowledge base for yourself before you go to a place. Because of social media, because travel can sometimes be very affordable, We're in an age of it's like you're just kind of collecting places and collecting stamps on your passport. And it's like, no, I think we need to get back to a place where we slow down a bit. We figure out, we do some studying (laughs) before we go to a place and we really know what we're getting into. We know who we are in relationship to these people. And we go forth with that knowledge. And we also accept that to be a tourist means to be a tourist. It means that the local experience is going to be different. You know, your presence will shift all the dynamics that you are in. And that's just, that's how it is. And that's okay. And food is such a good way of doing that, I think, because trying to understand how a cuisine developed, why it developed in a certain way. My perspective on this is just, if you're going to a place with knowledge and coming at it from a place of honesty, generosity, curiosity, that perhaps you will make a faux pas, we will all make faux pas. But, you know, that's the best possible way to do it. I love that. As always, so much of it just comes down to educating yourself so that you don't, you know, arrive on a continent and think that you're in India and you actually are not even in uh, the West. <laughs> 
So let me ask you, fake meat? I've never actually consumed any fake meat in my life, but feel pretty close to this critique based on a story that I wrote once in 2016 about a food waste company called Imperfect Produce. I'm sure they're doing very well in the world these days. But my general position was like, this is it. We are celebrating a problem that we created. This is creating wealth for people who don't need it. And it feels to me now, just as fast as this stuff showed up on the scenes, we're now in a retreat moment with a lot of these well-funded companies across the board. What have your observations been as a careful student of this arena? And how should we read this, I guess, like retreat? Is it a trend or is this going to come back, you know, after Reconstruction and bap us on the head like Jim Crow? <laughs> well, okay. I think that when we talk about fake meat, we have to distinguish which fake meats we're talking about. And I think for folks who do eat meat, I think that this past moment from like 2016 to now of fake meat, like impossible burgers, like beyond meat, this has been for omnivores. This has been a performance for omnivores of like, look how close we can get to meat. Whereas people who don't eat meat or haven't eaten meat for a long time, we already had veggie burgers or Boca burgers and like Morningstar Farms and corn. And we would make seitan and we would wrap mushrooms in Yuba or whatever, whatever we were doing that we had learned how to do because we had to learn how to do it. Because these things weren't one-for-one copies of me, they were always going to be fringe elements in the food world. But like, that's what was always so infuriating to me about the newer wave of Impossible and Beyond is that they were like, we're not for those weirdos, we're for everybody else. And we're going to help you eat less meat. Is that a noble pursuit? Yes. People on the whole in the West need to eat less meat. But they were going to do it in a way that was like so lowest common denominator. I mean, hilariously, you know, Impossible Burger started out at Momofuku Nishi. They started out at $26 at Saxon and Parole on, on, in the East Village, which I know because I used to walk by and like check on the Impossible Burger on their menu when I worked in the East I Village. I actually didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, it started out like super expensive and then gradually got down to a place where it would be at Burger King on a Whopper. And then they were like, oh, actually, this was our plan the whole time. And for me and for a lot of other folks, the problem with that is that, you know, you're saying we're going to make things better. We're going to like try and end factory farming. It's like you're not really lobbying against factory farming subsidies. You know, you're not in Washington, D.C. lobbying against those subsidies, that, which are what keep meat artificially cheap. You are not trying to also elevate conditions for the workers in these fast food chains. You're not trying to get them to source lettuce and tomatoes in ways that are less intensive and also better for workers, farm workers. You know, you're all you're doing is trying to make money and you're doing it on the back of this grand claim, as you were saying, that you have to continue to make in order to keep the money flowing. And so to me, it always seemed like such a cash grab thing. And, and I think that people were mad at me because I wasn't caring enough about what this could have meant for animal rights. But it's like, I also have seen the past of plant-based eating. I mean, now I have a whole book coming out about it. And it's like the past of plant-based eating, the way you get omnivores to eat less meat is to make really good vegetables and to make a really good veggie burger. 
that's why these things were a fad for a minute. But now all the media about them is like they're dying, they're crashing and burning. And it's like, because it was a cute commodity for a second, but it's not something that people are going to live on. It's not something that's really going to change the way people eat. You know, it, maybe it means that a vegetarian can go get a Whopper on a road trip, but you know, it doesn't change the game. I just never saw it having that huge impact that people wanted it to have. Same thing with lab meat. Oh, to meet the demands, we'd have to have like all these reactors and they use so much energy at the same time. It's like, I'm sorry, but there's really no way we're going to get around it. If we want to end factory farming, which we have to do to save the planet, we have to fight that problem. We can't just create diversions to the real problem. Like, sorry, yeah, you can eat uh, an Impossible Burger, but you're not going to be able to eat as much Impossible Meat as the amount of cow flesh that is now made, created by factory farming. It's just not going to happen. Wow. That's the fire that we need to wrap this up. <laughs> That's the heat. Alicia Kennedy, what a pleasure. Here's one thing. This is a rapid fire for sure, you. Sure, sure, sure. For someone who wants to be a writer, mm -hmm. you're probably the most organized person I've ever met. No one gets back to me faster on email. No one's more on top of it. When I close my eyes and think of people in my life who are just really, really top of it, I think of you. So um, <laughs> do you have anything other than maybe your own neurosis, which is a totally legitimate answer, if it is in fact the answer, that propels you to be so consistent and persistent as a writer? I think it is a combination of my own neurosis, being an eldest daughter, you know, and also just loving what I do as corny as that is. I do wake up every day and I'm like, I do want to do what I do. Amazing. Today is, a, is an off day for me, honestly. But I am like, I have my planner, I have my notebook, I have my Google calendar. I'm like on email probably too much from dawn to dusk. And, you know, for me, the secret is that I am very, very lucky that at this point in my life, I do whatever the hell I really want to do. And people are into that. I don't know. Just liking what I do is is the thing. That's honestly, it's one of those things. Sometimes the advice that feels like the hokiest is actually the best. And, and that's real. We very much look forward to No Meat Required, the cultural and history and culinary future of plant-based eating, which is coming out on August 15th. Tell the people where to find you and reach out. I'm on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, and I'm on Substack at www.aliciakennedy.news. Yeah, and Home Talent's very own. We're so happy to be working with you. Appreciate you. Thank you to executive producer Celine Glacier, sound engineer Max Kovalchuk, editor Ilgen Kordogan, and associate producer Quentin LeBeau. Special thank you to music composer Catherine Yang for all of the music that you heard on this episode, and Alexandra Bowman for the outstanding cover art. You can follow us and learn more about Whetstone Media at our website, whetstonemedia.com or on Instagram and YouTube at Whetstone Media. We'll be back next week. 